This is the Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. What makes you happy? Or perhaps more accurately, what do you think makes you happy? And what if you've got it all wrong? Have you ever been really excited or gung-ho for something, maybe a vacation, a concert, a, 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 a hot first date, or maybe just a big goal? And it played out exactly as you wanted to, but in the end, it didn't give you the joy, the happiness, fulfillment that you expected. Well, if so, you're definitely not alone. And one of the core tenets of this podcast is, is to shine the spotlight on what truly matters in the pursuit of your potential, not just in personal opinion, but in well-researched and validated science. Personally, I kind of geek out on what modern science and research can tell us about ourselves that flies underneath the radar of our awareness and understanding for the most part. And as it turns out, how we see, what we expect, and even our attempt to achieve happiness might be one area that we completely misunderstand. So I'm super excited to bring you today's conversation with Dr. Lori Santos from Yale University. I first learned of Lori when I was preparing for a keynote presentation to an audience of 400 first-year students at the University of Waterloo. I was keen to understand what are the challenges that students face. And what struck me was that both Stanford University and Yale University in the US, two higher learning institutions that are world-renowned for their academic excellence, their elite courses, and producing super smart thinkers in advanced subjects, that both of these schools' most popular courses were about how to consciously create a life of happiness, meaning, and fulfillment. Not what you traditionally would expect. And while that's not exactly a hard science or a classic science, it absolutely is a science. And as we're about to find out, it can take a lot of hard work to consciously create happiness in a true and meaningful way in our lives. So our guest today is the designer and deliverer of that course at Yale University. And to help you make this episode highly personal to you, I'd like to ask you to think right now in this moment as you're listening, think about what you're currently working hard to achieve or pursue. What are you pouring your time, your attention, your money, your energy into? And what about pursuing that do you think will make you happy? And are you happy in the process to get there? Or are you just hoping that happiness will be the payoff in the end? With that in mind, prepare to have your expectations challenged by Dr. Lori Santos. Be open to being wrong and be open to taking a different path to your ultimate happiness. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Dr. Laurie Santos. Laurie is a psychology professor at Yale University who burst on the public scene last year when she started teaching the course Psychology and the Good Life. It quickly became the most popular course in the history of Yale University. She has been featured in the New York Times, CBC Radio, and numerous other media outlets. She's also the host and creator of The Happiness Lab, a new podcast that explores the science of happiness as told through captivating stories. Lori, it's an honor to have you here. Welcome to The Ignition Show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great. I know we, we first connected many, many months ago. I know you were working on your new podcast and, and it's been, um, I'd love to just set the scene of our conversation here. It's often been said that perhaps the meaning of life is to be happy. And while there may be other strong opinions about life's meaning, happiness is definitely something that is a major component of a good life. 
But your work shows, and it turns out, that our minds often lie to us about what makes us happy. Can you set the scene for our conversation about some of the misconceptions of happiness and what we tend to get wrong? Yeah, I think this is this is a really profound insight that comes from the science because, you know, all of us have these motivational systems that tell us what to do to be happy. You know, if you think about how you spend your day and the choices you make, you know, from what you eat at lunch to who you want to spend your time with to what career you pick, a lot of those decisions are based on some calculation of the kinds of things that will make you happy. You know, how much money you're going to get or you know, how much you're going to enjoy it and so on. So even though happiness can seem kind of, you know, like a food thing like it, it's actually like controlling a lot of the kinds of things we do in our daily life the problem what the science suggests is that a lot of what we think will make us happy isn't going to work in the way that we assume um, so we sometimes think that things like money will make us really happy and that is true if you're below the poverty line getting more money will make you happier but you know probably for most listeners of the podcast like once you get to a certain level of income you're not going to get happier if you get much more than that uh, we also think that material possessions will make us happy. Uh, turns out there is a correlation between material materialism, kind of seeking out material goods and happiness, but it's a negative correlation. That means the more you're the kind of person that seeks out new material goods, more likely the less happy you're going to be. Mm. Um, and for my poor students here at Yale and the, and the other college students I work with, you know, lots of them think that the route to happiness is perfect grades, you know, a report card with straight A's, so you can get any job when you get out of college. But actually, again, there's a correlation between grades and happiness, but it's a negative one. So at least in high school, the students who get the best grades often report the lowest levels of well-being. And so this is really critical. I mean, it suggests that, you know, some of the main things we think of when we're trying to feel happier, when we're behaving in the world to, like, you know, make ourselves feel good, we're kind of going about it the wrong way. And we're also missing the kinds of things that really do support happiness. Um, all the research suggests that happiness comes from not like self-care, but being other-oriented, right? Like doing things for others, spending time with others. Um, happiness comes from a lot of free time, like time to be mindful rather than packing your schedule full of all kinds of stuff. And happiness comes from simple habits that we often like put off because we're worried about, you know, our jobs and our salaries, just things like sleep and exercise. And so it, it's the, I, th I find it really frustrating, right? Because our, you would assume that our evolved minds would give us some like, rich insight into the kinds of things that really work so that our motivations would be aligned like with what we should be doing. But the research suggests that's just simply not the case. Uh, I love that. And so let's dive into a few points here. You, you re referenced money. And I think a couple of years ago became, uh, again, kind of in the public view conversation quite a bit uh, around this magical mark of 70,000 or 75,000. You know, once we hit that, it's kind of happiness doesn't significantly increase. And you've also cited some fascinating research around the, 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 the uh, maybe the fun pub game of would you rather? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, it was a, one of the questions was, would you rather earn 50,000 a year if everyone around you was earning 30,000? Or would you rather have double that amount, earn $100,000 a year if everyone around you was earning $200,000? So what did, that, what did that research show and what, what lessons can we take from that? Yeah, well, well, what that research shows is that we, we don't necessarily think about the things in our life in objective terms, right? If we did, then objectively more money or objectively better stuff would be good. But it turns out that we often think in relative terms, like relative to something else. And with salary, it turns out that what we care about is what our salary is relative to other people. You know, so if I offered you a choice between $50,000 a year and $100,000 a year, that would seem like a really simple choice. 
kind of, but the one you pose where it's like, okay, but you get 50,000 when everybody else is earning say 25 or something or a hundred thousand when everybody else is earning like 250. Now all of a sudden people are split. And in fact, when researchers ran this study, they found that just about half of subjects picked more money. In other words, just like people are willing to forego like about half of their income to be earning relatively more than other people. And, and that gets at a deep point that's relevant for happiness, which is that it's not just what we have, it's kind of how we're framing what we have relative to what other people have. You know, so I can quickly make you feel bad about your salary if you figure out that somebody in your office is earning a little bit better than you. You know, I can make my student who got, you know, a 99% on her exam feel really bad, you know, if a bunch of other students got 100%, right? So it's not your objective score, it's kind of how you feel relative to other people. And, and that means that like a lot of our happiness tends to be due to what's going on around us. And if you think of the world we place ourselves in where we're on Instagram looking at everybody else's vacations and everybody else's birthday parties and everybody else's first day at school, just kind of coming up a lot these days in the fall when we're talking, um, you know, it, we, other people's successes can really affect us in ways we don't realize. So what, um, so, yeah, again, so many great points in there. So what advice would you have or what do you say, say to someone who is, you know, maybe find it, fun. I don't know if they're finding the right, right balance, but they're caught on the, let's say the success treadmill. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who are listening to this who are high achievers, who want to strive and achieve things and be successful. And they may be in the pursuit of that, feeling very stressed or burned out or run down in some way. How do you start to unwire or, yeah, what untangle that tension of, well, if happiness really comes from creating space for myself and taking the foot off the gas. How do I balance that with my desire to have more and more and more? Yeah, I think it's really tricky. I think it kind of depends on what the more and more and more is about, right? Because sometimes the more and more is about like something really, really far away at the end of the journey, right? You know, I'm, I'm working super hard for a grade at the end of my course, or I'm working really super hard to get that bonus at the end of the year or to make partner or something like that. And again, we, we forecast that those things are going to feel really great and they feel good, but they just don't feel as good as we think or for as long as we think. And that means that, you know, we can kind of get on this rat race where it's like, you know, as soon as I get partner, I'm going to feel good. And then you get partner and you're like, okay, uh, what's the next thing? Oh, I don't feel good right now. But as soon as I get, you know, like super partner or whatever the next <laughs> accolade is. Right. And that means we spend a lot of our lives not kind of enjoying the journey, but just kind of on this chase for something, you know, and this is the thing, the kind of thing I see in my students all the time. You know, I teach here at Yale University where just to get to this school, you know, students work incredibly hard in high school and so on. But then, you know, they, they feel wonderful this moment that they find out they get into Yale. But then as soon as that, they're like, OK, well, what's what's the next thing? You know, now I have to get into the perfect medical school or get the perfect you know corporate job when I get out of here. It's like you're not really enjoying the journey. And so the practical advice is try to figure out ways that you're not just kind of going after something really far away, but that you can actually enjoy the steps along the way. Um, in one of our podcast episodes, we uh, interview the figure skater, Michelle Kwan, um, you know, who's an Olympic medalist and, you know, has had many, many accolades along the way. But she says, you know, the reason I did it wasn't for that stuff. You know, what I really enjoyed was just like the actual grind, like skating across the ice, you know, getting up early every day to just do it. You know, I noticed like the crack of the ice under my skates. You know, I noticed like the cheer of the crowd, like she was paying attention to all the stuff along the way that she really did enjoy. And so the advice would be like, what are the parts along the way that you're enjoying? And if you're in a career where you, you really don't have a good answer to that, 
then it might be good to start thinking about like either what you can put in place to enjoy the journey along the way or whether or not that's a signal that you know you might need to do some rethinking about what your goals are and kind of why you're doing what you're doing yeah and I, I know your uh, a lot of your folk focus in your own uh, research and teaching is in the field of evolutionary psychology and and it makes, makes me wonder, just building on the points you just mentioned, you know, again, as a society, where did we kind of go wrong? I don't know if it was yeah. our, maybe our Western society of, of you know, the pursuit of success. Uh, you know, um, maybe it's a too, much, too easy black and white example, but maybe in the Eastern world, they're much more on the, on the uh, enjoying life. In the Western world, it's much more about achievement. In our Western world, we're experiencing a lot of negative implications of that with our, our health and our debt and everything else. So where do kind of where did we go wrong thinking that the achievement of all these things would make us happy? Um, and now what yeah. the research is saying, how, where do we go wrong and how do we how do we fix that? I know. No, no, I mean, you're asking really the million dollar question. You know, what what happened over evolutionary time where, you know, again, like these college students are in Ivy League schools, you know, where you get 40 percent of them saying they're too depressed to function. You know, in some ways, these should be the winners of our achievement lottery out there, but they're kind of still feeling really bad. Um, I think I think a couple of things come when you take an evolutionary approach on this. I mean, one is just this idea that, you know, natural selection wasn't really going for us to be happy. Natural selection just wanted us, you know, to push ourselves so we could reproduce and survive as much as we possibly could. And so I think, you know, if you're going for happiness, there might be a disconnect with, you know, how much you need to strive and how much achievement you really need. So I think that's kind of point number one. Um, the second thing is I think, you know, what natural selection was going for was, you know, for us to get like, you know, enough food and some shelter and stuff so we can survive and reproduce, right? But nowadays what counts as the right kind of achievement is sort of so much more nuanced and like, you know, most of us have kind of what we need to be okay, but it's still really hard to shut off those urges. And I think that's in part because those urges come from this place that we think we really do believe like once we get there, we'll actually be happier. You know, like, and it, this is hard for me to shut off. You know, I remember before I got tenure at Yale and I thought like, well, as soon as I get tenure, you know, then I'll be there. I'll be good. I'll be happier. And it was good, but you know, it wasn't like, you know, all right, I'm, I'm good. You know, wash my hands. I'm done now. Right. Um, and I think we can kind of delude ourselves to thinking that it's about the end goal and not the journey. Yeah. Um, and so the good news, though, is that I think what the research shows is that we can get better about paying attention to the journey, simply about taking time to be a little bit more mindful or to kind of put into effect kind of parts of the journey that we really do enjoy, that really kind of fit with our strengths and are kind of fitting with the kinds of things, you know, that really give us some flow that we're really excited about. Yeah, I think um, I, I agree with that. And I kind of look at it sometimes as, you know, we talk about this, the, the uh, quote unquote pursuit of happiness. But really what it seems like how it's played out in reality is, is more about we operate more as a pursuit of success, thinking that that success will give us the happiness. And we've decoupled happiness as part of the pathway to success. Rather, we've made it the, the output of success. And I think, um, I, you know, there are, we'll get into some of the practical ways, but I think it's a, it really is a paradigm shift for people to think about how do I infuse happiness into the progress, which will make me feel more successful rather than grinding it out for years, hoping it's, a, it's an end goal. And, um, mm -hmm. and I, I know one of the things you also talked about, you referenced Michelle Kwan there, and I think one of the, love the example as a sporty guy myself, you know, maybe the classic example of uh, who's happier, the, the, the gold medal winner, the silver medal winner, or the bronze medal winner. And, um, um, and tell us a little bit about the conversations you've had there about around the, the Olympic medalists 
and the meaning that they attach to those different metals. Yeah. So this gets back to the point we were talking about earlier that, you know, our minds are pretty dumb. Like we don't care about our objective achievements. We care about our relative achievements. And that means sometimes we're objectively doing amazingly well, but feeling like we're not really that great at things. And the classic example of this is, is the silver medalist. Um, if you watch Olympic games, especially when you watch medalists on the stand, what you find is that, you know, the gold medalist obviously is really happy. But the silver medalist kind of doesn't look like slightly less happy than the gold medalist. Often they look like they're in absolute anguish, you know, which is kind of funny. You know, they're second best in the world, but they're kind of sad, right? Mm. But the, the bigger puzzle comes when you look at the bronze medalist, because often they're happy. And in fact, in some cases, the bronze medalist is actually happier than the gold medalist. And that's like, wait a minute, they're worse than the silver medalist objectively. So what's going on? And so what scientists like Tom Gilovich and his colleagues have figured out is that it all comes to who you're comparing yourself against. Who's the silver medalist comparison person? It's the gold medalist, you know, like two, you know, two, two less seconds and they would be up there with the gold. And so they kind of feel awful, even though objectively they're doing really well. So what about the bronze medalist? You know, their comparison point isn't the silver, you know, they're not the, comparing themselves against the gold. That was like pretty far away. Their comparison point is like, wow, you know, if I just messed up a few more points, I wouldn't be on the stand at all. You know, I might have gotten no medal. I might go home completely empty. And so they're thinking relative to somebody who's below them and therefore they feel really good. And, you know, it's a lovely study because it's kind of funny to, you know, see these kind of you know sad silver medalists. And there's lots of great examples of, you know, people throwing their medal off or kind of crying on the stand and thing. Um, but, but it's, it's worse when you think that this is true of all of us in our daily lives. You know, how often have you, you know, done really well, you know, like cinched the deal or gotten some promotion or something, you know, earned a, a raise and you're sad because it's not as good as one of your colleagues. Mm. You know, again, I, I feel this kind of with vacations, which is like, you know, I'll go on vacation and kind of feel like everything was great. And then I see like, oh man, like, you know, some friend on Facebook went to French Polynesia and I feel like, no, like my, <laughs> you know, wonderful trip to Florida seems crummy. Right. And so this is something we do to ourselves all the time that because our minds are seeking out these relative comparisons, we're constantly finding other people out there, other people's achievements and stuff, looks and so on, that just make us feel worse about ourselves, even when objectively we're kind of doing okay. Uh, yeah. And so what, what's the, again, what's the suggestion? What's the, what does the research point to if we take the that uh, example of the, the feeling of a silver medalist versus golden bronze? And we, what's the equivalent of that in everyday life? Is it is the solution to... I don't know if that's too broad of an umbrella statement, but is it all about appreciating what you do have versus focusing on what you don't have? Or are there, there are greater nuances to it? Yeah, I think appreciating what you do have can be really powerful. I mean, the great thing about the human mind is that even though our mind seeks out kind of dumb reference points for us, these dumb social comparisons, we can pick new ones. You know, like instead of like comparing my vacation against the guy who's in French Polynesia, I could pick somebody who's really not in great straits right now. You know, I could compare, you know, what my weekend was like, you know, to the folks in the Bahamas who are facing the hurricane or just somebody who's living below the poverty line or a refugee. Like the great thing about our mind is that we can simulate all these other counterfactuals. We just don't often put the work in. <clears throat> Another counterfactual that can be really powerful is what researchers call negative visualization. This act of trying to imagine what your life would be like if you didn't have the good things in it. Um, and so the exercise I do sometimes when I'm giving talks is, you know, for all your listeners out there who have kids, imagine the last time you saw your kids was the last time you'll ever see them. You know, you can put in whatever terrible scenario you want, but they're gone. 
Um, my guess is that the next time you see your kids, you'll hug them a little bit more closely. Like that simple imaginary act, you know, it takes two seconds can make you appreciate more what you have. It's kind of a comparison point that can make us feel really good about what we like, what we, what we have in the world and kind of um, who we really love and so on. And so that I think is the message is that, you know, our mind is going to seek out these not so good reference points. But if you put in a little bit of work, you can always find, as I joke in the podcast, a bronze lining. You know, you don't want to look to the silver lining and feel bad. You want to kind of, you know, find some folks who aren't doing so well. And that can often make you realize how much you appreciate what you do really have. I love that. Uh, I was listening to one of your episodes as uh, we were, my wife and I were driving in our car and our car recently had its air conditioning broken. So it's been in the garage for a week. They gave us a loaner. Our car is 10 years old and the loaner is, of course, a shiny new car. And as we were coming back into the city, uh, we commented that, hey, listening to your comment there is, uh, we're going to go back to our 10-year-old car tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We're going to be really happy about that 10-year-old car. It's not going to be shiny or as comfortable, um, but we're going to appreciate it. And you're right. It is, it's a practice, isn't it? It's a practice mm-hmm. of, you know, m- might use the metaphor of building a muscle or, or strengthening a perspective, but it's a practice of consciously choosing those reference points. What is the mm-hmm. point of knowing that we are going to compare? The question is, are we consciously choosing what we're comparing against? Yeah, I think, well, what, one thing is that we automatically pick certain reference points. And the bad news is that our minds are really geared towards reference points that make us feel awful, which is kind of bad, right? <coughs> Excuse me. If you're kind of naturally looking out there in the world, you don't look to the people who are below you. You often look to the people who are higher than you. And this is like a deeply evolved trait. You know, there's even work with monkeys showing them if you give them faces to look at, they'll naturally look at the more dominant alpha male faces. And that's kind of what we always do. We always pick comparisons naturally that make us feel kind of crummy. The good news is that with a little conscious effort, you can shift that. You know, your natural inclination, you know, if I'm, you know, looking at vacation photos might be to look at Beyonce's Instagram and I'm like, oh, my vacation sucked. But it's like, actually, no, let me consciously realize that I'm actually incredibly lucky to go on vacation at all. You know, and most of the people on the planet don't ever get that luxury. And now all of a sudden I'm in gratitude mode where I'm really thinking about what I'm grateful for kind of framing my experience against one that, you know, actually is really common when you think about it. It's just not one our minds naturally go to. Yes. And you, you talked a few minutes ago about, um, you know, how we forecast feelings. And I know um, the author of uh, Stumbling on Happiness, Daniel, Daniel uh, Gilbert, correct? Gilbert? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, Gil- Daniel Gilbert talks about impact bias. And can you say kind of define what what we mean by impact bias? And again, what could we be more conscious of? How do we how do we navigate around the impact bias that we all have? Yeah. So impact bias is one of my favorite cognitive biases because it's one that we do all the time that really affects how much we can actually achieve in life. You know, if we understand impact bias really well. So so impact bias is this idea that often when we're thinking about some future event, we're making a prediction about how it's to feel, you know, getting a root canal, I'm going to predict that's going to feel yucky, you know, going on a nice vacation to Paris, that's going to feel fantastic. And by and large, the direction of those predictions in terms of whether they're good or bad is pretty accurate. But we're off on the impact in two ways. We often think that the, the magnitude of how good some event will feel, like how awesome it will feel or how bad it will feel, we're often how bad that is. We often think that the impact is going to be bigger than it really is. So we think bad events are going to feel worse than they usually do. And we think good events are going to be more awesome than they actually are. But we're also off in terms of the impact in terms of its duration. You know, we think a bad event is going to keep affecting us for a really long time. 
But in practice, we have all these psychological mechanisms to feel better. Same thing with the good events. We think that, you know, when you get a promotion or like a new raise or something, we think that's going to feel good for a really long time. But in practice, the good feelings fade much more quickly than we expect. And so that's the impact bias. Whenever we're forecasting about how we're going to feel, our, our predictions show that we're going to be more impacted than we actually really will be. And that can be a powerful thing to realize when you're making predictions about negative events or scary kinds of events. You know, how often do we put off doing something because we are predicting like, oh, this is going to feel you know, kind of yucky or this is going to be really stressful or you know, making this decision is going to be really hard for a little while. It turns out that those predictions are often kind of more fear-mongering than they need to be. Mm. And that means we're not really as resilient as we could be in all the actions we might take to kind of make ourselves better. Um, you know, I think about my students who, you know, like from like simple predictions about, you know, should I ask that guy or girl out that I'm really interested in? Or, you know, should I go for that club that's like, you know, a little bit, you know, I've never done comedy before, but, you know, should I try out, you know, or should I go for that job that's a little bit above my skill set? Oftentimes people just don't do it because their prediction is like, well, if I get rejected, it will feel bad. You know, the impact will feel really huge. But in practice, those rejections don't sting as much as we think. And so we should be, if we understand impact bias, it can cause us to put ourselves out there a little bit more, which I think can make us a little bit more resilient, a little bit more kind of goal oriented. Yeah, I see that coming up all the time with my coaching clients, you know, as they're, we're talking about some challenge that they're facing or something that they're, they're maybe they're hesitant to or afraid, afraid to do. And I often say that it's, you know, it's, we always make it worse in our own minds, but to, it's, it's one thing to kind of know that in theory. And it's one thing to also, also realize it in practice. And so I think one of the simple things that my clients often find works well for them is if they do step into the, step into the unknown or step into that, uh, get outside their comfort zone and make the action is to consciously reflect on, on what was it like in reality versus what you forecast or what you predicted to be. Mm-hmm. And it can be very, very empowering to realize in your own experiences that it didn't, it didn't turn out as bad as you thought it would. So the next time I'm, I'm facing something that is scary, maybe it's also going to be true that it's not as bad as I'm predicting it to be. So maybe I, maybe I should step into it. And um, it also, I guess the, the opposite in the scale, you talk about um, maybe some of your experiences with students there, but the opposite of the, uh, on the scale, what it makes me think of is, you know, many, much research around people at the end of their lives, people in their mm-hmm. 80s and 90s and beyond. And they I am asking about what are your biggest regrets? And usually the number one answer is some version of, I wish I took more risks, mm-hmm. which often plays out into, I wish I lived more in, um, more in congruence or in alignment to the life I wanted to live. And so I guess, would you agree that that plays into that, that the reason we don't take those risks is because we feel like whatever we think is risky is really scary and going to have some some massive catastrophic uh, impact? I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at people's regrets, people often regret the things that they didn't do, not the things that they did do. Right. And that's in part because, you know, when we're thinking about doing a thing, you know, that's our forecast. So like, oh, this is, you know, what if this goes wrong and so on? So we kind of, you know, freak ourselves out and then we don't really try to take action. But often every time you do try to take that action, you know, it's like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought, you know. Um, And that can be really powerful. I mean, in some ways, it's realizing the power of your own rationalizations. Like, you know, if terrible things go wrong, like, you're just going to rationalize it anyway, and you'll pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and you'll just be fine. Yeah. So we talked a lot about um, the impact of, of comparison and our own internal forecasts, which, again, I suppose you could say is another version of comparison of what we anticipate in the future, a lot of those, those kind of thought patterns <clears throat> make us feel yucky. What about the situation? Let's talk a few minutes about the situations that aren't really a comparison. It is your reality. 
and you've ex you've expressed and I've experienced as well uh, in your work with the student population that I mean the, the 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 stats are staggering that students in today's world are significantly feeling overwhelmed, feeling depressed, uh, experiencing anxiety. And so there's a real student crisis there. And of course, that extrapolates up to our, our, a lot of our Western population as well. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, just the, the, the data of people on antidepressants, et cetera, is just, it's just staggering for where we are as a society. So talk to me a little bit about, I guess, let's start with the student population, since that's maybe closest to home for you is, first of all, what are you seeing? What are the, the forces at play? What are the driving factors that are creating this real sense of overwhelmed depression or anxiety amongst young people today? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really staggering and it, and it feels so different than, you know, when I was in college. I mean, I guess now that was a while ago, I was in college in the late 90s, you know, so it's been some time. But, you know, the just the levels of anxiety, depression, feeling overwhelmed, like it's just different now. And, you know, the, the, like, the important question is what's going on? And I think honestly, as researchers, we don't have a great handle on it. You know, they're the normal culprits like, you know, social media and technology and things like that. You know, the right studies suggest that, like, that's not all that's going on. It is the case that, you know, the more time you spend on things like Facebook and so on, it actually predicts and maybe even causally predicts levels of depression and anxiety and so on. But that's not really explaining, like, the whole difference we see. Um, part of it, I think, is that, you know, at least what I see on the ground is that students are often in pursuit of the things that aren't going to work in terms of their happiness. So things like grades and, you know, the perfect job and so on. They're spending all their time going after that and they're foregoing the kinds of things we do, we know really do help for happiness. So things like uh, time affluence, this idea of having some time off, or even things like simple like social connections. You know, so many of my students, you know, will not go to a party or not hang out with friends because they're, you know, stressed about a problem set and so on. And we know that social connection is one of the biggest predictors, if not the biggest predictor of happiness. So the thing that distinguishes very happy people from not so happy people can be simply the amount of time they spend with other people. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think the irony is that my students who are, you know, incredibly driven, incredibly competitive, you know, incredibly goal oriented, they're going after goals that aren't going to work for their own well-being and that are going to make them depressed and anxious and so on um, instead of and in, at an opportunity cost to these goals that really will work for happiness, things like, you know, making friends and taking time off and just like having time to be mindful and so on. And I, I almost feel uh, I'm, a, I'm a new parent. I've got a, a 12 week old son. And, oh, congrats. <laughs> thank you. And uh, uh, so we, hopefully we have, my wife and I joke, hopefully we haven't messed him up just yet. <laughs> um, but uh, just staying with what the student, I agree with. So students are pursuing things. So that kind of begs the question, well, why are they in such hot pursuit of grades and achievement and everything else when generations previously were less concerned about it? Like, I don't know, as, as the parental, parental generation, are we messing up the kids? Are we giving the wrong signals? Or um, again, I don't want to spend too much time on the problem, but it's helpful to understand like what's happening and how do we start to change it? What, what's your view on why the students are so geared on the things that aren't going to make them happy? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, not to blame parents, I think it's very hard to be a parent in the modern age. But I do think that, you know, parental influence is kind of not helping the situation. You know, I see this in some of the, you know, parents I work with at Yale, where parents care a lot about their students' achievement. I think, you know, as a parent, you get it, right? You know, a lot of us, like, we want our kids to go to college, we want our kids to do well, we want our kids, in part because we want our kids to be happy. You know, that's the main goal. We want them to feel happy and feel successful in life. 
but sometimes we can focus on the wrong things and then the students take the you know the only path is this path of getting perfect grades and getting into the perfect schools you know almost to the point that if they're unable to achieve that, that stuff or if they mess up a little bit you know that they'll stop being loved or they you know won't even be a valuable person and so i think as a parent you can really help that by reminding kids like look you know i don't necessarily want you to get perfect grades i want you to learn stuff you know i want you to learn stuff because i think that'll make you happier you know or i want you to like you know get into a good college not because that you know the only way that you can be you know, a good human or have value in life but just because like it'll give you opportunities but you know you'll get the same opportunities if you know you're not in the perfect perfect college right and so I think kind of downgrading these expectations is important which I think to some high achievers can feel like well I don't want to downgrade my expectations yeah. it's like but if the alternative is that the, your kids are so anxious that they can't function uh, right now, we see in elite schools that sometimes as high as 12% of students report seriously considering suicide in the last year, right? Like, there's got to be something that gives. So we have to come up with a better balance of kind of wanting to achieve, you know, so that you can achieve things that, you know, will make you happy and kind of overwhelming yourself to the point that you're causing serious mental distress. And somehow it seems like we've gotten that balance wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I know if you type in the in the Google, uh, when you type in a Google search and it does the predictive guessing what word you're about to say, if you actually type in university makes me feel, mm -hmm. the list of words that comes up is overwhelmed, stressed, anxious, sad, fearful, you know, worried, etc., which is, which is absolutely counterproductive to what the point of school is. Exactly. And, and you see this now, not just in universities, but even in high school students. Um, there's one uh, stat uh, suggesting that the students who do best in school hate school the most. And it's like, what has happened? You know, hate learning the most. And it's like, we've kind of gotten away from like, the real goal, which is about learning and to these kind of external accolades. And, and that's something that kind of comes from the psychology too, you know, so there's been long work, you know, even with like rodents and things like that, showing that, you know, the more you give external rewards, like things like grades or sort of, you know, like a piece of food at the end of a maze, the more you can kill people's internal rewards, like just curiosity and, you know, like playing for the sake of playing and so on. And I really think that the extreme focus on grades and college admissions and all these things has kind of caused students to lose a love of learning. That's really worrying. Yeah. And that, and that continues, of course, in the professional world, especially in certain industries where the measurement is bonus at the end of the year. Or, mm -hmm. you know, whether, whether it's a business, if it's revenue increase or, yeah, there's all, all we've gone to a bunch of very much a grading kind of society in our professions as well. Yeah. And it's a lot of what I experience in, in my work in large corporations when I'm um, running workshops on how do you, you know, not just be a high performer, but how do you sustain high performance? And the, the root, root of it often comes from, well, we're very good. Life, life and our works in our, in our school even is going to demand us to spend our energy, to put in effort. What we're missing is the, is the balance, is the, is the recovery side, the, the taking mm -hmm. space, making time for ourselves, engaging in that, perhaps the simpler things in life, not because we are trying to lower our ambition and don't care as much, but it's because it, we are hardwired as human beings not to be a full, always on, go, go, go kind of machine. We need the opportunity to recharge our batteries, to reset our perspective, to relax our muscles even. Um, which is a, a little, you know, takes some people a little time to wrap their head around. But when they do, all the great results that they want actually tend to accelerate. Yeah. And I think, we, you know, we forget that 
the route to kind of great performance isn't always, you know, killing yourself and never taking any time off, right? Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, what the research suggests is that most of the things my students are trying to achieve, you know, getting a good job, getting good grades and so on, if they just focused on their well-being, they might get there faster. That's the yes. counterintuitive thing. Yes. We think, you know, perfect grades get us happiness, but the, the data actually suggests causally the opposite pattern, that students who are happier actually are more creative, they achieve more, they perform better, they get better grades. Um, and you can do this, these kinds of studies causally, right? So you can look at time one, happiness at time one, and see what it predicts at time two. So happiness at time one, in, in, in fact, even just in middle school, happiness in middle school and high school actually predicts the kind of salary people are going to get years later. Um, happiness in college actually predicts the kinds of relationships you're going to get later, whether you have a successful marriage when you're in your 40s and 50s and so on. And so I think we might be getting the causal arrow backwards. You know, we think like, oh, I have to achieve all this stuff and, you know, get partner and like, you know, kill myself at work to be happy. It's like, no, actually, maybe if you focus on the happiness side, you know, like it structured your life so that you could actually not feel so overwhelmed, the achievements would kind of fall out of that in a way we don't often expect. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I think people like you and, and schools like Yale, I, I, I applaud for being the pioneers and bringing this to, to life uh, and bringing it, you know, shedding, the, shedding the light on this truth versus the myths that we're, we're chasing. And I guess, I guess if we summarize some of the things we've been talking about here, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what the research says in your experience is that it's more accurate to say that what we need to to have or to do to be happy hasn't changed. It's not like we need we're seeking new things to be happy. What's changed is perhaps our lifestyles and the nature of our human social interaction that has changed and separated us from what we truly need to be happy. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. I think we're spending more time going after goals that won't really make us happy and much much less time on the kinds of things that really will make us happy. Things like social connection, time off, you know, healthy practices like exercise and sleep, um, you know, being a little bit more other oriented. You know, we focus so much on ourselves that we kind of forget that happiness comes from doing these things for others. And so we kind of just need to like reset our priorities. Nothing about what makes us happy has changed, but society has kind of caused us, allowed us maybe in some sense to go off towards things that don't really work. And if you know the science, you can kind of make a shift there. Yeah. So when we talk about practical, practical things that some you know, the listener can do, some things that they could engage in, and um, I kind of see it as kind of, I don't know if it's parallel tracks might be the right metaphor, but there are some tactical things that you could do on a daily, weekly basis. And I, I know some of the assignments that you've been giving your students around practices of gratitude or, or mindfulness or sleeping or random acts of kindness can kind of give, and correct me, if, again, um, I welcome you to kind of explain a little bit more about this. Those might give kind of spikes or moments of happiness. At the same time, there's this idea of how do you, beyond just spikes and moments, how do you raise your set point of happiness? How do you maybe become 10% happier as a flat, as a baseline for your entire life? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the baseline we often get from happiness, you know, you think about genetically and so on, you know, I think until we get you know, great gene therapy is probably not going to move the baseline around. But you can move your general happiness level around a lot through your behaviors, um, much more so than we think. You know, we often, often think of like happiness as like happy, happily ever after. You know, we get to some moment and we're like, all right, my baseline happiness is just different. But happiness is that that's not the right metaphor. Happiness is more like a leaky tire that you kind of just have to fill up every once in a while with certain things that kind of just make you feel good. And the more you can put in behaviors that do that, 
the more overall, you know, your, your tire will be fuller and it will leak less slowly and so on. And so those kinds of behaviors are simple things. In fact, they're like homework that I give to my students, you know, things like taking time for gratitude, you know, scribble down five things that you're grateful for at the end of the day, you know, take time to do something nice for someone, take time to connect with a stranger or a friend you haven't talked to in a while, you know, take time to make sure you focus on sleep and, and getting exercise in. It turns out a half hour of cardio is as effective at reducing symptoms of depression as a prescription of Zoloft, right? You know, we forget these mm -hmm. simple healthy habits can matter a lot. And so the prescription is like, you know, fill your day, you know, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes here, half hour here with these kinds of behaviors that really will work for happiness. And you'll have a sort of happiness tire that's a little bit fuller. I love that. I love that idea. And I very much appreciate um Again, you being the pioneer in many ways and bringing a lot of these uh, ideas to life and for the work that you're doing with the, the student population. And I hope a lot more schools are going to model the work that you've done, the research, and just bring that into student life. Because I think if we can set the, um, set the next generation up at the right level at their late teens and early 20s, uh, the perspective that they can bring into the workforce, I think, can be a really positive, really positive shift that our society is definitely going to need. Uh, the, the, the faster pace we live at and the more chaos perhaps in the world, we need to counterbalance it very proactively and very consciously. So, so thanks for all the work that you do, Laurie. And before I ask the final question, where can people learn more about your work or get in touch with you? Yeah, well, I think if you're interested, you should check out our new podcast called The Happiness Lab. It's available uh, wherever you download your podcasts. Um, you can also learn more online on Coursera.org. We have a version of the Yale class we teach available for free to anyone. Um, it's called The Science of Wellbeing, and you can sign up for free on Coursera. That's wonderful. We'll be sure to include those links in the, in the show notes. So the final question, Laurie, is what do you hope to ignite in the world? I hope to ignite uh, a a passion for understanding what really makes us happy and to give people as many tools to understand that as possible. Well, you're off to a great start and thank you for not only the work that you do, but yes, your reference to Coursera there. For those who are listening, those are free courses. You get all the, the wisdom from Lori and a community of people who are also in the pursuit of happiness in a real true way. And um, we wish you well, Lori, and uh, love to keep in touch and uh, hear more about your research as it comes out. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Cool. See ya. That was Dr. Lori Santos, psychology professor at Yale University and host of the Happiness Lab podcast. You can find all the links in our show notes. As always, we want you to get the most from the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learned, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you found interesting today. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect and let us know what struck you. And what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today? You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group. Search Facebook for The Ignition Show and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, that's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from the interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal basis. As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We actually read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.